1: I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, a nationally known gerontologist. Many of you know her as chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging and executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And it's just a pleasure to do these shows, Carol. We, we learn so much from the guests we bring on. And we've got a cool one coming on in just a couple of moments, Dr. Barry Jacobs, talking about his new book, Meditations for Caregivers.
2: Well, and, and we did have Dr. Jacobs recently on the Caregiver Teleconnection and we'll certainly be inviting him back. So, um, you know, it's it's great to have professionals who uh, are willing to to come and help caregivers out on whatever medium we happen to be on at the moment.
1: Now, for those who may not know about the Caregiver Teleconnection, what is it?
2: It's a telephone education support program. If you go to caregiverteleconnection.org uh, and look us up or caregiversos.org you, know, you can sign up and and we have experts like Barry Jacobs on the phone they talk a little bit you know in their area of expertise and he's a psychologist uh, and then they talk to the caregivers and it's a conversation between you and someone who really is you know a, a leading thinker uh, someone with a great knowledge in the field.
1: And for caregivers who are uh, the audience for this program, in many ways, it's an informal support group.
2: Well, it is. And, you know, it's different people on the phone every time. There there are voices you, if you did it all the time, you would certainly learn to recognize. And, and so it's really, it's a caregiver community on the phone.
1: Now, before we get to Dr. Barry Jacobs, um, when you think of hackers, you think of teeny boppers and kids in their early 20s, or someone deep in the Kremlin in Moscow as a hacker.
2: Uh, are, are older people becoming hackers? Well, according to the New York Times, they are, but it's not the kind of hacking that you're thinking of. So it's not computer hacking, but it's, um, it's low-tech hacking. Uh, for example, uh, they, they gave the example of a woman in Nova Scotia, who was, you know, let's let's think about all of us reaching into the refrigerator. And trying to find something in the fridge. And she just put a lazy Susan, that little thing that goes around and around in her fridge. We all have our napkins on it on the table. I doubt many of us have it in the fridge. But you know what? That's a great idea if you have mobility issues or vision problems, you know, spinning the lazy Susan and looking at the stuff in the fridge, let it come to the front from the back to the front's pretty good idea.
1: Or if you've got short
2: arms. If you've got if you've got short arms you know, trying to clean it out. So they you know and and so they were giving examples examples of ways that I'm envisioning hacking as a problem it's hacking problems you know it's it's disrupting their normal use and these are examples that I could actually picture my great aunt my grandmother my parents all using these depression era people who you know sometimes the new technology is a little more difficult than you know a, a smartphone and, and writing a phone number it may be just easier on a piece of paper for some of us uh, the old-fashioned way so it was you know putting rubber bands on a cup so that you have an easier grip or clothespinning the straw to the edge of the cup so it doesn't go swirling around as you're trying to help, you know, somebody get a drink of something. So really low-tech things. Um, if you want to check out the New York Times, it's Hacks Can Ease the Trials of Aging. Um, they also mentioned taking a fingernail polish and putting little dots on your cell phone where the 2 and the 8 and the answer buttons are, so that's a tactile reminder of where your fingers are. Otherwise, all those buttons do feel the same. Um, so I know you're not supposed to do it. You're looking at me like, I'm not going to do that to my smartphone.
1: I was thinking of my remote for my Time Warner Cable system, and they've got a bump on the 5, which is in the middle.
2: In the middle. so And that tells so you you're on, on you're on the 5. Right. But, you know, they're... For those of you who are caregivers out the, out there, you know, it's not always the high-tech solution. There are some low-tech ways. Uh, that you can make your life easier, uh, and so you might want to just spend a little, spend some time online to find low tech. Does that make any sense? Uh, but creative people, we, you know, we'd be willing to share them. You, you know, send us a note.
1: I was going to say, tell us the uh, low tech solutions you have, to high tech problems, and you can email those to radio at wellmed.net. and we'd love to see them. If you, your your mom, your dad, your uncle, whatever, have solved an issue in your home in your workplace. Uh, using a low-tech solution. You can be Email a hacker,
2: that. and you'll be a hacker for us. And
1: send that to us. And then, for those of you who are wondering, and we're not trying to send anybody to the other side, but can people, Carol, 65 and over, be organ donors? And I think most of us think, nah, probably not.
3: Well,
2: that's what most of us think, including some of us who maybe should know better. Um, but actually, um lungs and liver and heart and skin and corneas. Um, there are very, uh, we, we have useful body parts. Um, and so if you're older than 65, a lot of times we think, oh, throw out the old donor card. Um, but according to Paula Spann at the New York Times, you know, don't do that. Uh, obviously, if someone is a 20-year-old in need of a kidney, they're not going to put an 80-year-old kidney in a 20-year-old because they've got years and years and years to live. But somebody who's in their 60s or 70s getting a perfectly healthy Kidney from an 80 something year old or 70 something year old makes perfect sense um, and can be a real lifesaver. Corneas, you know, you don't even have to have good vision to donate a cornea. And uh, what she was saying is there's like people die on wait lists every year uh, waiting for an organ. And there are like 14,000 people waiting for livers. In
1: fact, Dr. Robin Eichhoff, and she's mentioned this on the air. On WellMed Radio, one of the other shows we do, uh, mentioned that her dad died for lack of a kidney donation.
2: And and there's nothing you can do when you're on that wait list and there's no match. Then you know it's game over. And so for for those of us, you know, you, if you are interested in becoming a donor, uh, when you renew your driver's license at the DMV, you can check off the box for the organ donor. Um, but you can also but they, you have
1: to tell people.
2: Well, you have to tell people, and there there is a a website um, that I'm going to keep talking, and I'll find the website that she was well. I remind folks that
1: are listening to Caregiver SOS on air at nine thirty a.m. The answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial, and you hear us Sundays at 6 p.m.
2: So registerme.org, oh, registerme.org like is an online forum to donate life. America. Um, the you know the the only drawback um, that's uh, impacted the organ donor business um, is that. You have to be in a. You have to die in a hospital, and when all of us think about the perfect way to go, it's usually at home, surrounded by family or friends. But you have to be hooked up to machines to keep the organs uh, alive and fresh. Keep even the blood flowing. The blood flowing, um, and so yeah. that's one of the reasons because more people are dying at home instead of hospitals. They're not having as many. The actual number of organs donated is less. Um, but you can go ahead and register yourself and, and let people know that you're registered and that you you know you need to be at a hospital uh, if you can. So you can donate your organs.
1: That's an interesting sidebar story. Wow. So listen, Motel 6 leaves the lights on for you. Uh, Is that a good thing, leaving the lights on?
2: Well, I hadn't really thought about it. Um, Light pollution. Now, I did hear a story. I think it was last year. They had a big story on how many stars we no longer see in the sky anymore because of the light pollution outside but i hadn't thought about indoor light pollution so interesting study in the netherlands um especially in the netherlands where they're up there and they have you know it's dark all winter so they took a group of little rats and they put turned the lights on for them for prolonged periods of time and you know what happened They had less muscle strength and developed signs of early-onset osteoporosis from having the lights on. Seriously? Holy moly those, who poor knew? Little guys. those poor little guys, yeah, so now we think about let's think about humans, and I'm not saying that humans and rats are necessarily the same thing, um, but it does raise a question about people who are think about nursing homes and hospitals. they have the lights on all the time, they do, and so it, you, the good news is when the rats were put back in their normal little dark environment, they you know their muscles gained the strength. Um, The osteoporosis went away, so the negative health impacts went away. It could be corrected, but if you... (laughs) You know, if you have a loved one that's in a facility uh, that has the lights on all the time, or if you're somebody who has the lights on all the time, uh, it can throw off your circadian rhythm. And apparently that impacts you physiologically. And you might want to just think about hanging out in the dark every once in a while. Now, this
1: has nothing to do with seasonal affective disorder no. where you need sunlight. No,
2: this is this is bone and muscle wow. strength. And, people, and these rats exposed to the light, their muscles actually atrophied. That's so I know I don't, I don't understand it, but I'm just telling you it was in the New, that's also in the New York Times and, and we believe them.
1: Years ago when I ran Jewish Family and Children's Service over at the JCC, I had a therapist working for us who's still there by the way, Roberta Varela, she also used to be on the radio. She never learned to swim until she went to work at the JCC where they had a pool and in her mid-30s she learned. Turns out others are learning as well.
2: Well, there was was really a delightful article, Learning to Swim at 75, from a gentleman who who wrote for Fit City in the New York Times. Um, And he was like me, okay, because I I remember my first swimming lessons, and they asked me to go on the bottom step in the shallow end, which, when you're only two feet tall, means (laughs) the water is over your head. Exactly. And nobody told me to hold my breath. They just, like, go stand on the bottom step. And you know what? You can't breathe underwater. It's very unpleasant. Um, and for a long time, I did not want to learn to swim. And so this gentleman had a similar negative experience and didn't ever learn to swim. But at 70 to 5, decided, you know, he could die if something else anyway. So he might as well learn to swim. If he drowned, it's probably not going to knock that much off, which was kind of funny. Um, but you know, the, the point of this is, and he, he, it, it really is a, it's a lovely article, uh, but... So many of us think uh, it's too late to learn things or it's too late to exercise or older people don't. So this just breaks that stereotype, that ageist thinking that we, we tell ourselves it's too late or other people tell us it's too late. And
1: the numbers of drownings every year from people who can't swim is enormous
2: well and you know my son taking after me and he'll kill me if he hears this on the radio did not want to learn to swim didn't learn to swim until he was in middle school and it was because you know what i said the world is full of bodies of water and you they don't even have to be deep uh for you to drown in them and so wow. if you bump your head you know uh, something had happened so anyway he had to learn to swim i had to learn to swim And this man, at 75, it was not too
1: late. That's pretty cool. Up next, we're going to be talking with Dr. Barry Jacobs, talking about caregiving and caregivers. And uh, he and his wife co-authored a new book, Meditations for Caregivers. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zernell. Up next on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
1: Eikoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
1: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
3: We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
1: You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
3: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on.
1: Well, we're so glad you're riding along with us on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron. As we have been telling you, we're delighted to welcome to our Caregiver SOS on air live line Barry Jacobs, who is a clinical psychologist, a family therapist, director of behavioral sciences in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where uh, he runs a program for the Crozier Keystone Family Medicine Residency Program a graduate of Brown University and his doctorate in psychology, comes from Hahnemann-Widener Universities. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And Barry, delighted to have you on Caregiver SOS On Air.
4: My pleasure to be here, Ron.
1: And I also want to take a moment and congratulate you for folks who are aware of the Caregiver Teleconnection Program. Uh, You hosted one of those programs recently and uh, have rave reviews. They really enjoyed having you.
4: I I really enjoyed speaking with the group. Uh, We we had some excellent conversation.
1: As you take a look at uh, the world around you as folks are aging, the numbers of people turning 65 every day is astronomical. And, of course, with that comes the challenges uh, for caregivers uh, who are overworked, stressed, feel as if they're the Lone Ranger. Uh, And you've written an interesting book aimed at helping them, Meditation's, for caregivers, practical, emotional, and spiritual support for you and your family. What's that all about?
4: Well, the book is made up of 152 short, uh, real-life stories of family caregivers, uh, all of whom were struggling to find some way to not just uh, do their essential work, but to derive positive reward from the work that they were doing, uh, for people to learn how to grow both personally and spiritually. To gain an enhanced sense of purpose, and also to really feel gratified that they were holding their families together through tough times. Uh, so the book is intended to inspire uh, caregivers to just to, to look at the work that they're doing for the positive uh, that that work that it is, and also to comfort them, uh, to teach them a little bit about uh, mindfulness, the ability to uh, to remain calm uh, under duress. Uh, and and to really uh, be with one's loved one as best as possible.
1: You and your wife, Julia Mayer were co-authors of this book. What's that like, writing a book with your wife?
4: Uh, You you know, it was a great experience. We have two children. Uh, They both uh, had gone off to college in the last few years. We were empty nesters, uh, and we had uh, a little bit of a void to fill. Uh, and so uh, I've been writing uh, uh, columns for the AARP website for, for years, and ARP actually approached me about writing this book, and then I, I asked them if my wife could do it with me, uh, and it worked out great. I mean, it actually brought us closer together. My wife is also a clinical psychologist who works uh, very closely with family caregivers, and uh, she also has her own personal family caregiving experiences as to why. Uh, so we both had a lot to bring to this book, and uh, I, I think the book uh, benefits uh, from our combined efforts.
2: Well, talk a little bit about your personal family caregiving experience. I mean, that's that certainly enriches the work that you do, and so many of us ha- are caregivers or have been caregivers. Uh,
4: I, I would go so far as to say, Carol, that I, I wouldn't be a psychologist and I wouldn't be working with family caregivers unless I, I had some of the personal experiences that I've had. Uh, so I, I grew up in a family uh, in which my father had brain cancer while I was a teenager, uh, and my family uh, really uh, went through tough times, not only because of my father's illness, but because uh, my uh, mother and my father's mother just fought like uh, like the Dickens throughout his illness, um, and that that really made the caregiving and the tragedy of his illness and eventual death uh, so much harder. Uh, and it really, it, because of that experience, uh, it. it, it brought me a sense that you know caregiving can bring families closer together, but it, it also can tear them apart and you know i I, I made, have made it my professional mission to help caregiving uh, be a, a, a an experience of, of positive enrichment in the lives of families. Uh, In more recent years, uh, about six years ago, I moved my mother and stepfather up from Florida uh, to live with uh, very close to me in in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia. My my stepfather at that time had very advanced Alzheimer's disease, uh, and my mother was really frail and just having a hard time caring for him. And so my wife Julia and I uh, cared for the two of them uh, the best we could uh, until such time as my stepfather had to go into a nursing home. He has since subsequently died, and unfortunately, my mother in the last few years has uh, had her own uh, cognitive issues. She now has vascular dementia, and uh, it just herself moved into a nursing home quite recently.
1: There, you look in a dictionary under caregiving. Your pictures there.
4: Well, I, I, Ron, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that because I think there are a lot of people who are doing this work uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, and, and I haven't done it. Uh, uh, but, and I really respect people who do. But I, I, I learned enough in caring for uh, several people in my family to know uh, a, a little bit about the ins and outs of this, uh, and that has really enriched uh, my life and also informed my, my experience as a psychologist.
2: Well, I, you know, what I... When I love about the book and, and some of what you just said is talking about you know taking something that for many is something negative um and I know in our own in the foundation in our stress busting program, we talk about reframing this issue of caregiving, and by by helping people to see the positive for and for a lot of people that's really really hard. And even just hearing your experience, it'd be really easy to walk away from caregiving thinking, "Oh my gosh, that's the worst thing that's ever happened to me," as opposed to you know this was an experience that you know made my life. You know, enriched my life in ways and I learned from and it made me who I am.
1: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, Ron Aaron with Carol Zernio, Dr. Barry Jacobs, our very special guest, a clinical psychologist, family therapist, author of Meditations for Caregivers. And Barry, you're going to jump in right there.
4: Well, 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 what I was going to say, Ron, is that I, I, I wouldn't say it was the worst thing that ever, that's ever happened to me, but I would say it was probably one of the hardest but just because things are hard doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're bad or, they're, or that they're onerous. Uh, basically, we learn from hard things. I mean, we, we, when we set a, a difficult challenge for ourselves and we're able to meet that challenge, we really do derive a, a sense of, of gratification as well as gratitude. And uh, that's the, the kind of benefit that I would like all caregivers to, to derive.
2: Well, talk a little bit about the book, because it's organized um, sort of systematically. There's there's a thoughtful approach into the way that you put these stories together.
4: So the, the book is, the 152 stories are divided into 28 themes, which really reflect the, the, the broad range of feelings and experiences that caregivers have. So some of the themes include things like anger or resentment uh, and, and, uh, and, and anxiety and guilt, but also very positive things like devotion and dedication, forgiveness, gratitude, uh, humor. Um, because we, we really wanted to, to, to demonstrate that uh, all these, these human emotions are, are part of the caregiving experience and that you know, and, and the, the stories that we have under each of those those themes really uh, illustrates how how different families uh, use humor or or struggled with guilt or overcame anger uh, in their caregiving.
2: Well, and so many caregivers may think that oh, I shouldn't be angry, you know, and they feel guilty. All those emotions that you just talked about, for a caregiver who's isolated, who doesn't talk to anybody else, you know, they can have this, all of their negative emotions can fuel even further negative emotions.
4: Well, I think what ends up happening, just as you say, Carol, is that people have uh, negative feelings about caregiving and then have tremendous guilt about those negative feelings. And in, in essence, they beat themselves up for having those feelings. What I always say to my clients who are caregivers is that it is normal and expectable for people to have a range of emotions, including negative emotions. Really, no one truly loves to do all the tasks of caregiving because some of those tasks are not very pleasant. uh, But uh, that doesn't mean that we don't want to do the work. It also doesn't mean that we don't love the care receiver for whom we're doing the work. Um, and, And it's really okay to say, I hate doing this work, but I want, but I, I, I choose to do it
1: anyway. It's interesting. Your very first chapter, accept your feelings, is exactly that. If you understand where you are, and then it's okay to have that range of feelings, uh, that might make that uh, sense of anger a lot easier. Uh,
4: that that's one of the most important points in the book. I mean, we want people to accept all of their feelings, positive and negative, um, and and not come away feeling that they, they've done a bad job or that they're a bad family member.
1: But you know, and, and you touched on this as well, Barry, and uh, it's interesting because of the caregivers listening to Caregiver SOS on air right now, many feel anger, many feel resentment, and that often leads to guilt.
4: I understood, and, and so I can tell you, I have felt plenty of anger and plenty of resentment, as well as plenty of guilt in the caregiving that I've done. I mean, I, I just was visiting my mother this this weekend at the nursing home, and things did not go very well, and I I, I left feeling all riled up. Um, that's part of, of of the territory. I mean, that's that's just just part of, part and parcel of what what goes on in caregiving because these stakes are so high. But as I, I often point out to caregivers, um, it's not as if family members were completely harmonious uh, groups of people prior to caregiving. I mean, people had arguments. People had, had uh, battles at times over various things. They sometimes said things that they, they wish they could take back. That's, that's also part of normal family life uh, without caregiving. And if, if that also occurs during caregiving, people shouldn't think that it's some, some heinous crime. It, it's, it's part of who we are as human beings.
2: Right, and and a lot of the baggage that we've carried around possibly in the relationship over the years, it's not unusual for that to get unpacked um, during a caregiving situation.
4: I I would go further than that, Carol, to say that we should expect it, I mean, especially... Uh, when we're caring for a parent you know, with whom we've, we've had a, a, a lifetime of relationship, that relationship could be a very good relationship. We may really want to be giving back to that parent for all that we received from them. It also could be that that parent did not take very good care of us, and now we're, we're in a position of having to care for someone uh, who may have neglected us, and that that's awfully tough. So the, the history of the relationship certainly uh, shapes the caregiving experience. But even in those instances where we're caring for someone who may not have treated us very well in the past, there may be positive uh, things that we can derive from it. I've heard many caregivers say, you know, I I don't really like my mother, uh, and I I didn't like the things that she's done during her lifetime, but I do believe morally and and religiously that caregiving is the right thing to do, and I'm glad uh, to have this opportunity to do it.
1: Stick with us. We're going to come right back to you. Carol, you want to jump in for a minute? Well,
2: I was just saying, I was thinking of one of the caregivers we worked with who was asked to, her husband left her, divorced her, and went to live with someone else, Um, and then when he got Alzheimer's, he was sent back home. Uh, for her to take care of, you know, the the new person asked her to please take care of her I don't former want to husband, and she did, and she did. Wow. So, you know, that's just an example of some of the, the heroics, you know, and, and really digging down deep to to care for someone else that you may have had a difficult relationship with. Hold
1: that All thought, right. Barry. We're going to get your response in just a minute. I'm, you know radio. It's how it works. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel and Caregiver SOS on air, right here on 930 AM, The Answer. We're having a very interesting conversation and learning a lot as we do it with Dr. Barry Jacobs. He is a clinical psychologist, family therapist, and he and his wife are co-authors of Meditations for Caregivers, Practical, Emotional, and Spiritual Support for You and Your Family. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial And Barry, uh, you're about to jump back in to this conversation.
4: Uh, I was going to say that, uh, you know, Carol shared a story about a, a woman who divorced, uh, whose husband left her, and then later on, uh, when he needed caregiving, she took him back. I've actually heard that that particular story a number of times over the years, uh, and I think what, in, in my conversations with with women in that role, they basically said that uh, they just think that this is the right thing to do, and uh, that, that their their ex-husband is somebody who's, who's vulnerable, who needs care, and it's just the right thing to do to care for someone uh, who, who who's in the, in that need, uh, and and it's really admirable, um, and extraordinary, uh, not something that. All of us could do, but uh, I, I really want to tip my hat to those women who, who make that choice.
2: Well, you know, in the book, even in the chapters where you might be talking about um, guilt and, and anxiety, the the thought at the end of the story really does come back to, you know, it's almost like when I was reading the stories, it's almost like acknowledging this negative emotion and then letting it go, The you know, the little... The few words that you have at the end of each of the stories it it kind of gives you a chance to like acknowledge it and and look at this negative emotion and then let it go
3: well
4: one of the the uh, themes throughout the book is this idea of mindfulness which is uh is is we can observe and you know, really closely observe and be very aware of of what we're experiencing at any given time um but then we we. We don't. We can actually stand back from that and, and observe ourselves, and, and and really forgive ourselves for what we may be feeling, and, and not get so caught up in the feeling that we then ruminated uh, ruminate about it you know, ad infinitum. Um, I, I think when when people can take that perspective of, of uh, more of an observing distance on their own lives. Uh, and 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 still be engaged in that life. Of course, uh, they, they're able to to not react so strongly to the things that go on around them. They can take things in stride better, and they and they actually can remain in the present uh, uh, better uh, with their loved ones at, at a time when they're lo- they may not have their loved ones for very long.
1: As you've had experience talking to caregivers, you've been there. Your wife has been there. Is there uh, a a personality description of someone who becomes a really good caregiver who doesn't get bogged down in all of the emotion, who just does the job, embraces the job, sees all the positives, and then goes on with life.
4: What I would say, Ron, is that uh, the, the, the very best caregivers I've seen are people who who have a, a real moral sense underlying their caregiving. They just they think this is the right thing to do, um, and that they then approach caregiving in as flexible and a creative way as possible. Um, knowing that there are going to be tough times, knowing that they're going to run into barriers and that uh, there are going to be days when they, they feel like pulling their hair out, um, but also knowing that, that, th- that this is a mission that they set for themselves for a reason, and uh, if they can't get things done one way, they'll get it done another way. Uh, those creative thinkers... Who who have a strong uh, sense of principle uh, behind their caregiving, they seem to, to really sustain themselves best over, over the long journey.
2: Well, what you've just described um, as one of the qualities of a successful caregiver is also the qualities of people who age successfully. You know, is that flexibility and kind of rolling with it, whatever it is that you know comes your way.
4: I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I would I would. Say that it, it, th- those are the traits that we all need in dealing with adversity and change in life. I mean, you know, life throws its curveballs, and, and uh, sometimes uh, they're you know we can we can feel sorry for ourselves, we can really gnash our teeth about what's what's happening. But uh, you know, people who have uh, what's now commonly called grit are, are those who basically say, okay, this is what I'm faced with now. Now, how do I go forward?
1: Well, as you take a look at uh, what you've done in putting this book together, uh, the Emotional Survivor Guide for Caregivers, looking after yourself and your family while helping on aging, uh, it's something that you've also been very active in putting together in this book. But as you think about uh, where this goes while helping an aging parent, what advice would you give to caregivers?
4: Uh so you, you were referring to a book that uh, that my first book on family caregiving yes. was published in two thousand six. emotional survival guide for caregivers. Right. Um, you know that that book has a little bit different take. Um, it it it, uh, it identifies seven tasks that all caregivers ought to consider doing in, in in providing care for a loved one. Uh, and those things include uh, flexibility and creativity, but also things like defining uh, the, the commitment, what one what, what is willing and able to do, but also what one isn't willing and able to do for a loved one. Uh, utilizing support, um, you know, sustaining the spirit, uh, you know, maintaining one's relationships over time. It, it's 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 really that's a kind of a broader look at uh, some of the coping mechanisms that people uh, need to use as they go forward. Uh, it it. It, the picture it paints of caregiving is probably more negative than the second book, uh, and I, I think that has to do with the fact that that as, over the past ten years, um, I, I have seen uh, the positive rewards of caregiving uh, more personally myself, and so that 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 informs my second book.
1: The positive rewards, such as
4: uh, such as uh, you know the fact that people learn and grow. Uh, they gain a sense of maturity and mastery. You know, they, they take on tasks that they thought that they, they could never in, in a million years tackle. And then not only do they tackle them, but they become expert at them. Um, folks who become really good caregivers, they, they often have a sense of pride in, in the different things that they've learned to do. They've learned to, 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 uh, to talk to doctors uh, and, and get their point across. They've, they've learned to uh, manage medicines. Uh, They've they've learned to to deal with an agitated loved one. They've learned to to talk with with other family members and to be able to really uh, recruit them to to help. I mean, those those are all skills that uh, most of us don't have going into this work, but we gain over time.
1: Well, most of us fall into this job. It's not something that you study for, prepare for, and learn. It's something that happens when the call comes, often, that uh, grandma's in the intensive care unit or something tragic has happened to your spouse.
4: Mm-hmm. that that's right um so i what I would say to you is uh especially because we live in a society that's aging, um all of us should should have some uh awareness that that this may come i mean is uh uh, Rosalind Carter has pointed out: You know, if, if you haven't been a caregiver at one point in life, you will be, or, or you're going to need a caregiver at some point in time. I mean, this is part and parcel of of of, of life uh, as a human being. Uh, we all age, and, and our loved ones all age, and, and we have to find ways of and be prepared for caring for one another.
1: Having said that, Carol,
2: well, so in, you know, in your practice and talking with caregivers, you know, what are the most uh, common issues that caregivers bring um, bring to you that they're trying to work through.
4: Well, let's see. Um, I I've recently been seeing a, a woman who was caring for her mother with uh, ALS, uh, and her mother was very physically debilitated, um, and uh, she had she had had a very good relationship with her mother her whole life and wanted to care for her mother, but the work itself was so physically taxing. And unfortunately, her mother was so frustrated by being so debilitated that would would, would not be cooperative with, with my client. And so uh, my client felt like a lot of caregivers feel that she was making sacrifices and she wanted to make those sacrifices, but instead she was getting a lot of flack back from the person that she was caring for. And that made her very angry. And then, as you pointed out earlier, she felt, very ang- felt guilty about mm-hmm. having those feelings of anger. Um, and so... Basically, I, I, I did with her what I described before. I, I helped her feel that, that, that those feelings are normal and expectable. Um, I, I helped her see that her, her mother's uh, lashing out at her had more to do with her mother's frustrations than any particular criticism of, of my client. Um, and I, I really helped her gain uh, as, as much support as she could and also to, to really feel as, as positively about the work that she was doing, that that. She, she was doing really good essential work for her mother. And unfortunately, her mother died uh, about six mm-hmm. weeks ago uh, as a result of her ALS. Uh, and I, I saw uh, my client the other day, and, and basically, she, you know, she, she's grieving her mother. Uh, and she said to me, you know, I, it was really hard to care for her, but I'm very, very glad I did. And it actually has made me a better person, a more compassionate person. I, I feel I have greater sensitivity towards other other people's difficulties in life. Uh, and so um, that that's exactly the kind of growth I, I hope all caregivers gain from the very difficult uh, work, but essential work that
1: they're doing. We're talking to Dr. Barry Jacobs author of a couple of really powerful books, Meditations for Caregivers, his latest. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zernial on Caregiver SOS on air at 9.30 a.m. The Answer. As a quick sidebar of the San Antonio Express News, I had a wonderful, wonderful article by Melissa Stolci, who is one of their best feature writers, following a family with ALS. They let her into their life, let a photographer in. Uh, And did an incredible expose, not expose, but an incredible piece opening up what that is like from when he began uh, to spin down to when this uh, ALS patient died. A powerful story.
2: I agree. I, I have to say that I saw the story, I was thinking about the same thing, and that's certainly when you're talking about caregiving, ALS is, is one of the most difficult. Um, but uh, Barry, you know, you're working with uh, caregivers from a variety um, of, of challenges and diseases, you work with the American Heart Association, um, so is it different, Do care, are caregivers with various diseases, are there big differences, or are we really kind of one big family?
4: I think that there are similarities among caregivers, but there are also differences depending on the uh, specific challenges posed by the, the particular kind of illness, as well as different family uh, constellations. Uh, so, you know, there are some diseases that, that hit us all at once, like a heart attack or stroke, and, and the suddenness of, of, of the illness of uh, is, is shocking and, and really throws us uh, a disease which is, is kind of more slowly progressing like Alzheimer's dementia or Parkinson's disease. Uh, these are diseases for which we have more time to prepare and make make changes, uh, put put supports in place. Uh, so uh, different caregivers with different, dealing with different illnesses um, have, uh, you know, different challenges. Sometimes People may be very good at one type of challenge and not not so good at others. Um, they may be great at caring for somebody with, uh, who's got a physical ailment, like uh, maybe a spinal cord injury or ALS but if they have to deal with someone who has cognitive problems like hmm. like uh, louis body 's dementia, they have a very difficult time with that
1: i've got to stop you right there i 'm sorry we 're out of time, but i 'll tell you what you folks want to get a hold of your book, Dr. Jacobs. How do they do that?
4: Uh, The best way is to go to uh, Amazon.com to to buy uh, AARP Meditations for Caregivers. Uh, We also have a Facebook page uh, that uh, you can get more information about the book. It's AARP uh, Meditations for Caregivers. That's the name of the Facebook page. Um, And uh, the the book should be available wherever books are
1: sold. Okay, got to stop you right there. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you, Ron. Thank you so much, Carol. Dr. Barry
1: Jacobs, uh, he and his wife, authors of... Meditations for Caregivers. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
1: Eikoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
1: And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything.
3: We've talked about medical issues. We've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on.
1: You name a disease, and we've covered it with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.
3: Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio?
1: Well, at the end of every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs, we bring you Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron, and we throw out a topic, and then uh, we all kick it around. So, Carol, you've got a great topic today.
2: Well, this one really caught my eye. It was an article about, when you think about, you know, shaming, and we hear about teenagers and being shamed on social media, but this was an article on shaming the caregiver for placing their loved one in a facility. Wow. So Jamie, why would anybody want to shame someone for putting their loved one in a facility, for not caring for them at home for the rest of their lives?
5: You know, I don't think it's anybody's place, do you Carol, to actually shame somebody for what they're about to do with their family member. It seems to be such a a projection of, of control And uh, shame is, you know, that's the Achilles heel for a caregiver, shame and doubt. um, You know, they have a difficult time encouraging themselves to be mindful, to be, you know, powerful, to be, you know, fearless in the ways that they deal with their loved one. The last thing they need is shame and doubt to be bestowed upon them for, you know, something that somebody really does not understand outside.
2: Well, and I don't think this is probably that unusual. There, Within many families, I suspect, there's a brother or a sister or an aunt, uncle, cousin who's like, I can't believe you put your mom in a facility.
5: It's so easy, isn't it? I mean, it's easier said than done. Certainly, if the primary care, again, this is why all the steps of caregiving needs to be followed. And the most important step is that you don't go this alone that you actually put together the family whether they're long distance or they're short you know, distance or, or the primary care uh, caregiver you need to get a third party engaged and be able to have at least monthly i would suggest almost bi-weekly calls it's not expensive all the family members can pitch in and let's really see what is shameful and what is not i am certain with good facilitation um, that there would be a whole different approach to this by that family member.
1: What does what shaming say about the person who's doing that? Well, it's
5: a projection of guilt, I believe. You know, uh, if especially it occurs when somebody's not the primary caregiver. It's when they kind of feel that they maybe sh- should be more involved, that they should be more there, and, uh, and it's easy for them to be a quarterback from afar. Well, uh, I think that shaming... I think that they use shame in that way to keep people controlled, if you will.
2: Well, and that when you, I was thinking exactly the same thing about being an armchair quarterback. I mean, because it doesn't necessarily have to be a relative; it could be, you know, the next door neighbor, kind of tisking. You know that oh my goodness, they, you know, they they didn't take care of, you know, Mrs. So and So. They they put her in the home, and that there's such a negative connotation to a facility. So I think probably a lot of this is very unenlightened in terms of the positive benefits of putting someone in a residential care facility.
5: I I totally agree, Carol. And and, and when one shames, the other person usually feels guilt. And what one doesn't understand, and again, this is a cross-cultural issue because you'll see African Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanics, you know, actually you know feeling possibly that that they have to keep their loved one at home for some particular reason, they are more pronounced to do that. But to be perfectly blunt with you, there's some fabulous assisted living and skilled nursing facilities, certainly assisted living um that and I say assisted living because that's the first step that really has a powerful social component, that has a way to engage a loved one where they can't be engaged, isolated at home. There's so many personal factors that go into this decision by the family with their loved one that I don't think anybody from afar should get engaged in this.
2: Well, we had um, someone from a staff person at WellMed that was telling the story about their mother um, having to go into a facility And once she got into the facility, had her medications adjusted, had activities, had socialization, that she turned around 180 degrees. Um, And I've seen that in my own work, a a gentleman that had Alzheimer's disease that we placed in a a facility, and he thought he was back in the Navy. I know I've told this story before, but he thought he he moved into the facility, thought he was back in the Navy, told his wife, you know, they've called me back. Um, and so he loved story. it. He loved being in the facility because he was back at work. You know, he's back in the navy. He had things to do. Um, and so, uh, a lot of times, you know, either somebody living alone isn't taking care of themselves, or the caregivers had a difficult time managing the medicines, the behaviors, everything. Um, and people thrive in a residential environment.
1: But the stereotype in, in our society, Doctor Jamie and, and Carol, is well, we don't want to do that. We promise our care recipient, we're not going to institutionalize you, we're going to keep you at home. And then when you finally make that decision, which is undoubtedly the right decision, doesn't some of the guilt come from that?
5: Well, no doubt it does. And, and we should never, that's an exact example why we should never be making clinical promises for something that's down the line. We just don't know. And to your story, which I also believe is so heartening, Carol, Um, It's about what we've always said. Isolation is the cancer of the caregiver's soul, but it also is the cancer of the caree's soul. They don't want to be just, you know, going around the house, shuffling from room to room with no interaction and no group there to to assist them in terms of bringing some effervescence and energy into their life. You know, isolation is never a good thing.
1: And yet, when you take a look at this shaming uh, quality uh, a lot of us do it uh, throughout our lives. We uh, do that with politicians we do that uh with folks who we don 't think are performing well. We do it with some of the Olympic performers. oh, well, look oh, what happened there
2: well, and we do it with other parents you know and they're we're, we're, i can Remember a, a few times when some other parent, you know, you hear the tisk tisk uh of, you know, I can't, you know, I, I'm a better parent than that. I didn't do this. So I'm a better caregiver than you. I never placed my loved one in a facility.
5: And that's precisely, precisely why self-care is critical if you're a caregiver. You need to have your, you know, two feet on the ground. You need to be taking care of yourself, mind, body, and soul. If you're doing the things that bring you self-esteem, that reduces your guilt, you're not going to be affected by this. You're going to absolutely know what you need to know, feel what you need to feel, and do what you need to do.
2: Well, would you respond to someone? I mean, would you recommend that the, the caregiver respond, or how should a caregiver respond if somebody, either a relative or a neighbor, has decided to weigh in and pass judgment on their caregiving decisions?
5: Well, that's a good question, Carol. I mean, there's always the thank you for sharing, but that seems to be too dismissive at the end of the day. I would really go back to the basics. I would say, look, if it's a family member, certainly. We can get a geriatric care manager. We can get a clinical social worker engaged. We can sit around and discuss this issue with a third party. And and we can actually, you know, process what they feel, their feedback. And so you feel comfortable, you who is actually shaming me, and I feel comfortable, I who is actually making the decision.
1: We have a neighbor who uh, recently had his wife uh, put into a memory unit Uh, And the response of all the neighbors is so opposite of what we're talking about. Uh, All of us have been so supportive uh, of his decision and so comforting to him because it was so painful and difficult. And he has uh, talked about that just standing in the street uh, talking among neighbors. uh, I can't imagine putting someone down for making that decision, but I know it happens. Well,
5: and, you know, people have this sort of uh, image, and stereotype of a memory unit. Um, It's not the same as it once was. In fact, if you look at the way we're aging and the care, you know, and the health we have today, you know, the assisted living is the old skilled nursing, if you will. We're just not going in as quickly. And when we say memory unit, you know, we have this terrible sort of image in our mind, everybody shuffling around, nobody knowing what to do, like pinballs. That's not the case. They're extraordinarily creative memory units that deal with people at the clinical spot where they are actually at and are able to program individually around them. So we're playing into people's stereotypes, and and truly those stereotypes should be kept to themselves, or they should be educated somewhere, someplace, somehow by somebody, and that's where the third party comes in. Or maybe that person who is shaming should go to a support group as well and be able to bounce these ideas off of others making that type of decision.
2: Well, before the show, Ron was telling me the story of a comment uh, that his brother made, not that Ron was shaming his brother, who was a caregiver, but, uh, you, you know, t- tell your story very my quickly in this was last ca- minute. was
1: caregiver for both my mom and dad, uh, and at one point, he's in Cleveland, Ohio, I'm here in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, I said, hey, Jim, I- I've got a question, and he said, uh, is it a question about how I'm handling, managing care for our parents? I said, well, yeah. He said, tell you what, they'll be on a plane in about three, four hours. You can pick them up at San Antonio Airport. They're yours now.
2: <laughs> I said, I didn't but, really have a question. No, no questions. It's all good. So <laughs> Gotta stop maybe you. that's we're, the we're response. We
1: are out of time. Dr. Jamie okay. Heisman, thank you. Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron on Caregiver SOS On Air. That was Take 10 on 930 AM, The
0: Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.
1: It's hard to believe, but this all began in year 2010.
3: Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin
1: Eikoff, Ron Aaron, Med Radio.
3: What a terrific ride it's been.
1: And since then and continuing we have talked about
3: everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues and the list goes on.
1: You name a disease and we've covered it but with answers for people who have it aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones.